At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. This episode is a question and answer. You guys submitted a bunch of questions on social media, and Dr. Baraki and I will be answering them. Um, what's going on, Austin? Not much. Just finished up, uh, finished up having dinner. I'm on the... Uh... I'm on this diet. You might have heard of it. It's called the IIFYQ diet. If it fits your quesadilla? If it, if it fits your quesadilla, you might have heard of it. Yeah. So I went, I, I went for that. Well, it's doctor approved. So right. it's got to be legit. Um, before we get started here, brief introduction for all our new listeners. Uh, I am Dr. Feigenbaum. I am a resident here in Southern California. Um, I also have a master's degree in anatomy and physiology. And prior to that, a biology degree. So in saying all of that, all you need to know is I spent way too much money on my education throughout over the years. And uh, also, you know, before we do any sort of uh, advising or uh, give you guys answers, it should be stated that any information we give here with a medical bias is strictly for entertainment purposes only. You should talk to your physician before starting or stopping any new medication or treatment. Dr. Baraki, give people a little background on you if they, if they don't know who you are. So yeah, I'm Austin Baraki. I'm an internal medicine resident in, down in southern Texas, uh, originally from Virginia, competitive swimmer for a long time, which will come in in a couple of questions we're answering today. Uh, turned powerlifter after I finished that. Uh, now coach, doctor, do that kind of stuff on a day-to-day basis. All right. You know, the other thing that people do or we have been exposed to Whenever we have a, a professor or a physician who's giving us uh, some teaching, uh, they always have to do their, you know, what are your disclosures? Uh, and and I, I don't think either of us have any financial disclosures that we need to make about, you know, we're being tied to pharmaceutical industry or, or anything like that. However, I do think it's important to kind of uh, explicitly state our biases uh, before we, we get into this. So, you know, both of us are, are strength coaches. We definitely see things through that lens. That being said... Um, it'd be very difficult to say that we don't try to remove these biases when answering questions. I mean, being a physician and being trained as a physician, you're kind of taught to look at things objectively. So I think that's that's where most of our answers come from. You can add to that if you like, but I, I have no disclosure to make other than I'm a strength coach. <laughs> and my Are you sure are you, are you sure you don't have to disclose any disclose anything about Gains RX? I think if there's a supplement question, then I will Disclose my financial <laughs> financial ties to Games RX. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in general that we are very open to um, to uh, ideas as long as there is some evidence supporting it that is quality evidence that's not wholly made up and pulled out of someone's rear end, as we have experienced in a, in the past couple of days um, that we might talk about a little later. So yeah, if you if you have a if you disagree with something that we say, um, we're open to hear it if you can support it in some way, and it's not just anecdote or something like that. Yeah, rectal expectoration. That's the uh, <laughs> yes. Um, the yeah, the other thing. So right, exactly. So things have to have some evidence, or they at least have to have a physiological plausible mechanism. Uh, and if it doesn't have either one of those, and uh, you know, the death knell would really then be if there's net evidence suggesting that what you're saying doesn't exist. 
then, <laughs> then, then, then you really have to you really have to wonder what is the motivation behind behind doing that. So, okay, we're gonna jump right into it. The very first question um, is from the Barbell Resistance. Says, what three to five questions have been beaten to death, and ideally, you will not have enough time to uh, or will not have to address after this podcast. Yeah. So I think the first one that we both get super often is, uh, what are your thoughts on Texas Method and or 531 as pa- as folks finish the novice phase? And so go for it. Well, yeah, I think I don't, well, one, I don't think that answering this question in this podcast is going to stop those questions from. I agree completely. <laughs> so, so I actually think, I don't think that's uh, going to occur. Also, we're answering, we're answering the original question, not the questions that we hate answering. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, you know, thing one is I believe uh, my article into the great wide open on Texas Method and 531 is going up on startingstrength.com tomorrow. So that will be the resource I will be subsequently directing everyone towards um, to answer the question what do I think about Texas Method and 531 after the novice progression? Uh, I think that both are poor choices for most people, uh, 531 being significantly worse than Texas Method. And the idea is when you're thinking about programming variables, you're thinking about frequency, you're thinking about volume uh, as it re- and, and intensity, and then exercise selection. And both of them are suboptimal, in my opinion, when coming off a of starting strength linear progression. Uh, Texas, there, but for two different reasons. So Texas method tends to be a little too much stress, too much fatigue uh, is induced by the training overall for most people to recover. Uh, the exception would be the young male who's gaining weight, who doesn't have a job, uh, and is just able to train, sleep, and eat all day. So if that's you, hey, Texas method might be for you. All right, uh, but if not, then I don't think that it's a it's a viable option for 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 most people. Five three one, on the other hand, it seems to be a not enough stress. The exercise frequency is inappropriate. The volume is much too low. The frequency, the exercise selection, it's all wrong. Uh, and more more interestingly than that is Wendler never ran five three one. So like so that's that's thing one. It's not he just pulled this out of, out of nowhere and put it on T Nation in two thousand nine. Got a huge response. Then he made an ebook. And you know has subsequently sold uh, millions of copies. Yeah, and, and then the other thing is, he's a Division One athlete, like football, like like legitimate athlete. So so you could rep, uh, you could say that well, even if he did do it, it had good results. Is that you? Are you the D one athlete? You know, generalizability. Um, yeah, uh, and the last thing I'll say about this actually has nothing to do with Texas Method or five three one, but it's just the principle of oh, this athlete did this program, and so I want that program. Uh, I can see the appeal of that. Uh, for instance, there's a guy who just set the new world record for the 220-pound weight uh, total um, in powerlifting, and he's like, "Use my exact program that I used to set this world total." And I was like, that, "That's not appropriate for anybody, <laughs> unless you may you are also in danger of setting the t- world record total <laughs> for the 220-pound weight class." In fact, uh, yeah. So I think anybody who bought that who's not in that demographic is uh, doing a disservice to themselves. Yeah. All right, so that was one question. All right, second question that you get Oops. all the time. Yeah, next one that we that we get all the time is, okay, I see you guys squatting. What's the deal with having your thumbs around the bar? <laughs> I thought Ripito teaches thumbs over the bar. Yeah, you guys are dissenters. And, yeah, and as if Rip is going to come after us and, and take us out because we're squatting with our thumbs around the bar. It's fine. It's really, you know, your thumbs, your thenar eminence, believe it or not, is not a prime mover in the squat. Right. So you can hold the bar however you like. What I tell people is if the bar's in the right place and it doesn't move from that place throughout the rep, I do not care how you hold the bar. 
Yeah, exactly. And I'm in agreement. And the thing is, I think both of us probably start coaching people, um, you know, with the uh, the thumbs over the top of the bar, uh, where the wrists are held flat. But if you can't do that with the, uh, if you can't have the wrists in neutral position uh, and your elbows move too, or your elbows move too much during the squat, then we may switch it. Also, if you have elbow pain, shoulder pain, or whatever, it seems reasonable to me to try wrapping your thumbs around the barbell, which I think is how yeah. both of us ended up defaulting yeah. to this position. And uh, it's fine. Rip Rip has signed off on this. He he, <laughs> he said, has watched me squat in person and been okay with it. So. <laughs> he says thank thank you for this interesting consult. Yeah. All right. What's the third one that you think? Uh, let's see. What do I think about ketogenic diets? <laughs> Can we just say suboptimal? Yeah. I mean, there's actually a question <laughs> on it, but yeah, I think and you know, there's some popularity in that within our community, and I think we'll just address that. In the other question, um, other questions that I commonly get, you know, what if, stretching, stretching will come up later. Yeah, and then what's the best pre-workout? So yeah, maybe now is the time to do the, <laughs> do the financial disclosure. So yes, I did make a supplement. It's called Gains RX. So if you buy that supplement, I suppose I'm I, I am somehow biased to this to this answer. Yeah. The deal is there is no good pre-workout supplement out there, and that's this is just an a priori sort of evaluation. Uh, for there to be a good pre-workout supplement, you would have to uh, have the reason that you're, or you'd have to, to have in your brain that taking something just before the workout is indicated. And that's not necessarily the case. And theoretically, if there was just a, a supplement out there that was creatine and caffeine, I mean, okay. But, but then you have to understand that everyone's got a different cre- uh, caffeine dosage that's appropriate for them to benefit their training. Uh, uh, so, and that doesn't exist. There's not like a, oh yeah, di- if you do 12 grams, this is, you know, of the supplement, you get this much <laughs> caffeine. Well, I, you know, so, um, yep. so no, there's no, there's no such thing as good pre-workout. Uh, they're all built on lies. Uh, my supplement is not a pre-workout. You take it before and after you work out or just twice a day. Either way, that's that's the plan. Um, so it's not a pre-workout, and if you call it a pre-workout, part of me dies. And I think just for public health purposes, don't kill me. Yeah. Please don't. Uh, also, what are you drinking, Dr. Baraki? This is some um, Sazerac rye. Excuse me. You're very fancy. Yeah. Meanwhile, over here in Redneck Nation, we have an orange monster. <laughs> I would like everyone to know that I slept from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. today. And, uh, yeah, it's like a sleep PR. Okay. Yeah. All right, we're going into the questions. And what we've done is we've separated them into different categories. We have training, medical, nutrition, injury, and MISC. And it's not like the bodybuilding forum, bodybuilding.com forum, the MISC forum. This is just miscellaneous uh, questions. So we'll start with training. And how this will work is I will read the question. I'm like the moderator. And then my compadre, uh, Dr. Baraki, will answer first. And then I'll give a very nuanced answer that Austin rolls his eyes at. And I think that's how it's going to work. I think I was, I was in some situation where somebody's asking me about differences between us. And I just said, I'm the practical guy. You're the nuanced guy. Yeah. I left it at that. Yeah, that's probably right. That's probably right. Practical Jordan. Yeah, you're the likable, <laughs> practical Jordan. That's fine. <laughs> All right, so here we go. John 606. How do you guys feel about assistance exercises? Is there a threshold for having not enough assistance exercises or too many assistance exercises in a strength program? And should assistance exercises be part of a strength program, tracking progress on them, etc.? Or should assistance exercises be used only when needed if you notice a weak spot in one of the major movements that could be helped by assistance exercises? Okay, so yeah, this is another question that we get 
all the time. Um, people are, maybe they, they might be stalled on a given lift and they say, how can I make it go up? What other assistance exercises can I add? Which may or may not be the right question in the first place for these people to be asking. So um, I feel like I'm, you know what I'm gonna answer here and it's gonna probably uh, tread on your tread on your toes a little bit. But the idea with the assistance exercises is this, is that you can layer out, you can, you can line up basically all the exercises on a spectrum. The spectrum is uh, that of specificity, how specific they are. So if we're talking about the squat, um, the squat is the movement that you're trying to improve. And then you can line up every other squat, squat variant, leg, ham, glute, whatever exercise that you can think of somewhere along a spectrum of specificity. The more that exercise looks like the squat, so let's say that your main lift is the squat with a the belt, then you take the belt off. That's a different, technically a different lift, but it looks exactly like the regular squat. If you do that with a pause squat instead, or a tempo squat instead, those are all slightly different, but still very specific. They look exactly the same. If you switch to a front squat, now that's a little bit less specific. It looks different. If you go way down the line to a leg press, it's even less specific. It doesn't look like the squat at all. If you go to knee extension, it's even worse, et cetera. So you can do this for all the different exercises. So when you guys ask about what assistance exercises can I think about, you need to lay, line them up in terms of specificity. The ones that look more like the exercise you're trying to uh, improve are gonna have more carryover because everyone asks about carryover. Now, should they be part of a strength program? The answer is it depends. It depends on where you are. Novices don't need assistance exercises because they don't even know how to do the lifts right yet. They need to learn how to do the lifts, train them, progress them linearly because they can. Once that stops working, then you might have to start changing variables. Exercise selection still isn't necessarily the first variable that you change when novice progression stops working. It's probably not even the second variable that you change. It's a little bit further down the line once you get into intermediate land where the world of assistance exercises and exercise variants is opened to you and you can choose from them. I do feel that you should track your progress on them because if you PR your pause squat by a lot, then hey, your regular squat probably went up too, you know? Um, and if you notice a weak spot that could be helped, then you need to decide why is there a weak spot? Is it a technique issue or is it something that I really need a new exercise to work on? Um, and then the only other thing I would add is that sometimes you might purposefully opt for a slightly less specific assistance exercise if you need to get some additional work in on like a weak body part or a weak spot that the whole lift might be too fatiguing if you were to ramp up the volume on it dramatically. But I will say that that's also not a super common scenario for most people. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, no, that's, I think that's very, a very good response. My, the only additions I would add are, I would define assistance exercise first. Uh, yeah, just so, so you could reasonably define an assistance exercise as anything that is not the competition specific variant. And, and even if you're not a, a barbell sport lifter, you, your, your sport's not a barbell sport, uh, like powerlifting, weightlifting, or, or CrossFit, um, you know, we, I just default to defining the squat, the bench press, the deadlift, uh, and overhead pr and press, uh, as the competition lifts or, or priority lifts. And then all of the variations uh, of them would be assistance exercises. And yeah, I, I agree with your specificity argument. Um, the thing is, uh, I actually don't think that assistance exercises, uh, help more than just doing more of the regular lifts. Um, I've done multiple sort of A, B tests on, on my own, my, in my own coaching practice where I have people exposed to the, the same lifts the same number of times, but one group will do assistance exercises and other groups will just do the, the, very, the regular lifts and the outcomes are nearly the same. 
Um, more interestingly, I've noticed a trend that the people who just do the competition lifts over and over again will tend to see a rise in their estimated 1RM uh, uh, sooner than those with the assistance exercises, which actually brings into consideration uh, another question. Is it the assistance exercises or is it the exposure to the lift? So what well, I, so, the specificity side of things would argue that it's the exposure to the lift because it's highly specific. Well, right. So, but then you think about the people who are doing just the competition lift; they're getting exposed more often to the the regular lift, the actual lift. Yeah. Exa- exactly, and so they get a little better faster. And so, would I have would I have seen a bigger improvement in the one RM in the people doing the specific lifts if I? Uh, change their programming up so where they can they can manifest that. You know what I'm saying? Basically, uh, I did not take advantage of their their improvement uh, because they were on the same a same program for the same amount of time. Gotcha. So that was I thought that was interesting. And the other thing I would say, yes, if you're going to go through the trouble of programming in assistance exercises like a pause squat or pin squat or, or pin bench or pause you know ex- a longer pause bench, yeah, you should track your progress. Of course, you should, like <laughs> yeah, why would you not? if you're not going to track your progress, it's not it's an ex- not an exercise worth doing. And I, I actually chalk that up for even for like stuff like curls or whatever. It's like if you really want to do curls and, that's, and you're going to take the time to do so, uh, then you need to track it. And if you're not, don't do the exercise. Yeah. Because you're going to get down the line, and if you haven't actually been increasing or setting PR on whatever it is, then you're going to wonder why you didn't get any better. Yeah, you're just wasting time. You're just wasting yep. time, and you're inducing extra fatigue for no reason. Yep. And that's this is all from a purely performance-based standpoint, and on some level, you could argue that improving performance improves motivation, which ultimately improves outcomes. Okay, sure. But th- you know that our answers are strictly based in performance. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sounds good. All right, PB and Sarah. I assume she means peanut butter and Sarah. I don't know how they go together but we will have to ask. <laughs> PB and Sarah asks, uh, after listening to your first podcast, I am not a power lifter, nor am I training for anything specific, but I love weightlifting. Uh, I assume she means lifting weights. If there are cardiovascular benefits to weightlifting, can I cut out aerobic activity or minimize it? Right now, I try to do one plyometric focus day per week. Well, half plyo, half stationary bike. Uh, but I feel like general exercise recs scream aerobic activity like walking or running. Ugh, I know. <laughs> the only aerobic activity I can tolerate is swimming, and I don't have access to a pool. Anyway, I would prefer to stick to weight training as my primary form of exercise. What do you think? And I will actually not, I'm not jumping in with an answer, but in addition, uh, one of my clients actually, uh, so she got evaluated by her uh, GP and had uh, uh, nonspecific T wave changes. That mm-hmm. she didn't have an old EKG. Oh, sorry. So T wave change, basically uh, a finding on a electrocardiogram, an EKG that you get, you will get either in the emergency room or in your doctor's office. Just looks at electrical conduct uh, conduction in the heart, and uh, a T wave change is just something that the doctor will see and say, "Huh, wonder what this means." And usually we'll compare it to an old EKG. And if we don't have an old EKG, that basically triggers a further workup because we're like, "What does this mean?" And so that further workup could be just another EKG, could be an echocardiogram, which is an ultrasound of the heart, a stress test even, or something like that. So in any event, she had an EKG, showed T-wave changes, had no prior EKG to compare it to. So she ended up getting referred to a cardiologist to get an echocardiogram. I know, you're shaking your head because I have two. She's low risk. (laughs) This is funny. All right. And then the cardiologist goes off on her about weight training, that weight training is dangerous for the heart and that she needs all this cardio. Keep in mind that she's actually doing two days or three days of conditioning per week, all right, yeah. per, our, per our protocol. But, but he's just going <sighs> on saying weight training is bad for the heart, doesn't do anything. Yeah. You know, exclamation point. And he's a cardiologist. Yeah, of course. So, all right, so what, is your thought, what are your thoughts on this? 
So to the original question, she would like to stick to weight training as her primary form of exercise. What do I think? I think that's totally fine. Um, we, as we discussed in our previous podcast, that um, you know, for people who are doing this for general health, working in some conditioning to their program is fine. You don't feel like you have to do it if you hate every second of it. You do get some cardiovascular benefit from weight training. The cardiologist, in your example, is obviously completely utterly wrong, and in contra contrary to all the evidence that we have uh, that we have seen and previously cited that we discussed in our blood pressure podcast, uh, it, there is no harm. Uh, there's no harm to the heart and a previously healthy individual. I'll obviously ask why that, why she had an EKG done in the first place. But anyway, well, we, <laughs> <laughs> this whole thing, the whole, Hey, you got to, we shouldn't have, even, we shouldn't have even been looking and then we see something and then we attribute that nonspecific change that could happen in anybody that we see all the time in all of our patients who don't lift. Uh, and, and he attributes it to the weightlifting because that's something that he likes to point his finger at, for example. So it is pretty silly, um, but the idea is that, hey, you're going to get under a bar, you're going to squat a set of five, it's going to generate some strength adaptation in you, and your cardiovascular system has to support that effort. It has to, you know, you have to maintain enough blood pressure to perfuse your brain and keep yourself conscious while you're doing the lift, get all the blood to the muscles that are consuming the oxygen to execute the lift, and so as the weight goes up on the bar, your vascular system adapts, your heart adapts to being able to handle that. I saw a recent post uh, about yet another resistance training study that showed increases in arterial stiffness, an increased uh, amount of stiffness in the in the uh, arteries that would be uh, scary to these people. And somebody commented, it's like, oh man, that's certainly a maladaptive response to exercise, isn't it? And it's like, well, if you're thinking about this in a really overly simplistic and primitive way compared to some of the newer studies that we have that look at better measures of what's going on in the vasculature, per particularly uh, the ones that look at the uh, the uh, vascular reactivity, and basically meaning the capillary beds that come after your arteries, how well they can dilate and accommodate for these pressures. Because if all that happened was your blood vessels got more stiff, then your blood pressure would go up from resistance training, and that's not what happens. There's, it goes down just like it does with aerobic training, or there's no change, depending on the resistance training protocol that they use in these studies, if it's completely ineffective, as an example. But if you have an effective resistance training program, your blood pressure will go down. How does that happen if your blood vessels get more stiff? Well, it turns out the blood vessels are getting more stiff because they need to get jacked just like you do in order to tolerate the blood pressures that you're exposing them to. But they get more reactive. I'm just saying that that is a screenshotable thing, Austin. And you just, <laughs> I, I just say, be careful. Yeah, all right, I got you. I get amped up with this stuff, you know? I just, so, again, just keep <laughs> I'm not sure what to do with my hands. <laughs> <laughs> so point being, if you hate aerobic activity, no one is forcing you to do it. You can stick to weight training as your primary form of exercise. I'm not going to say that doing some conditioning is bad for you or, or counterproductive, uh, but there's nothing wrong with that. Yep, I agree. Uh, and yeah, for further make the point, yep, there, we have pretty good evidence that shows that people who are strong in general have a lower risk for all-cause mortality and morbidity. Morbidity being sort of disease prevalence. Uh, um, you know, basically the stronger you are, the less likely you are to get something like diabetes or, or uh, like congestive heart failure, stuff like that. Okay. Or die. Or die. Yeah, the mortality aspect of that. However, uh, there is a minimum uh, sort of, we call this cardiorespiratory uh, uh, a threshold that you have to meet in order to sort of qualify this. <laughs> and uh, so basically they measure that by VO2 max. And the VO2 max is exceedingly low uh, yeah. to meet this threshold such that it could be reasonably attained in an untrained individual 
by lifting weights. So the short of that is, if you are below that threshold, lifting weights will likely produce the change in VO2 max for you to meet that threshold. And any increased endurance above that doesn't necessarily help your cause. Um, it doesn't mean that it's going to hurt you. It just may not be the most effective use of your time if you're only looking at this from a health perspective. Uh, yeah. yeah. And the other thing is, you say that the only thing that you can do for conditioning is swimming, but you don't have access to a pool. Well, I think you answered your own question there. <laughs> I mean, just from a logistics standpoint. I suppose. All right. Swam train. What are your recommendations for training squat for people in lighter weight classes, less than 74 kilograms? Still five by five, but with less frequency. Uh, this also presupposes that we recommend five by five. Exactly. <laughs> or, still. or perhaps a four by four with same frequency. Uh, I'm, again, I'm unsure. Okay. Or change nothing at all. So hold on just for the internets. Uh, and this is because, you know, we do lives fairly often in these Instagram lives where we're answering questions. And I think you and I both really like answering well thought out <laughs> questions just because it shows us, hey, you guys thought about this and you want us to think about it. And I'm happy to do so because you, you are participating versus just, you know, this, this. Yeah, exactly. All right. So we don't recommend five by five in general. That's not a stock recommendation. So I don't know where that comes from. And I don't know what program you're referencing to five by five with what frequency so how many times per week is somebody doing five by five? Because if you're referencing a different program where somebody's doing five by five three times a week, that's certainly different than our Texas method or uh, uh, like Andy's keep it simple, stupid program or yeah. anything else. Uh, and I don't know. And then you said, or perhaps a four by four with the same frequency. Again, I don't really know what that means. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Or change nothing at all. So that all being said, I'll just, so I'm already talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> In general... As a lifter advances, they're going to need more volume, which can be done with more frequency, more inter-workout, inter uh, sorry, intro-workout volume, which just means more sets, uh, or, or more frequencies, just more exposure. Um, in general, lighter lifters tolerate this better than heavier lifters, although my, my bias is that the reason why heavier lifters can't tolerate this is because the intensity is, is very high for them relative to their body weight. What I mean by that is 75% for a lighter lifter is lighter than 75% of someone's 1RM for a super heavyweight. Uh, and I, I think that has differing effects on the, on the, how they accumulate fatigue. So in general, for people in the lighter weight class, I do think that they do need increased volume and frequency. Although just based on the structure of this question, I would think that this person is more likely a novice who should be doing the starting strength novice progression and probably not be a lightweight lifter. Yeah, so if they're a male and they're less than 74 kilos, we have a slight issue that needs to be remedied before we worry about this other stuff. Unless you're 5'3". Yeah, I'm just saying. Maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. If they're a female, then, yeah, it's a different story because you might not be interested in, in doing that. But, yeah, I mean, the, you are very likely a novice and don't have uh, don't have really much um, much of a strong reason right now to be worrying about these sorts of variables um, as it relates to your specific weight class and how to optimize uh, frequency and volume and intensity for someone in a, at a particular weight. You just need to do the novice program and train. Well, that's a very smug answer, Dr. Baraki. So. I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> ben Robots asks, after about three years of training, do you think that going back to a uh, simple linear progression program is frivolous? Uh, when I started training, I did linear progression for a little bit, but as soon as I started doing research, I jumped into a more intermediate style program. So I'm wonder wondering if there are still potential gains, trademark, 
that I haven't exhausted through linear progression? I would say that there's only one way to find out. <laughs> there can only be one. <laughs> it's very possible. I mean, I don't know what your three years of training were like before. They could have been highly unproductive. You could have jumped to an intermediate program. Which one? I don't know. Um, but, you know, if you want to find out if there's still some novice gains that you can make, you need to go back Monday, squat three sets of five, come back Wednesday, add weight, and see if you can do it. If you can't, you might not be a novice anymore. Let's make some assumptions here. Let's assume that he was not running a linear progression for three years because that's actually impossible. Uh, I, mean, well, I never you, said he was running a no, no, I know, I know. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but I'm just saying, so that's impossible. So, because you, you can get strong in other ways, I suppose. Oh, sure. Just slower. And so it might have taken him three years to get reasonably strong. And he could be past the point of novice progression, but he totally. might not be. So, totally. if you want to find out, try it. Yep, yep, I agree. Uh, but yeah, so probably one of the things that we hear most a lot of times, hey, I've been doing starting strength for a year, and our first response is, no, you haven't. Because you can't. You can't do it. You're doing it wrong. Or, or something's happened, and you've been like restarting and stopping and restarting and stopping. So that's thing one. Thing two, actually, I had a lifter who I took to, a, who they went to a meet. I think they totaled like low 1400s as a 220 lifter. And then after they got back from the meet, we did a deep one week where we kind of deloaded, got him little, had him recover. And then we started a, a linear progression just because his volume had gotten very, very low uh, right before the meet. So he effectively had resensitized himself to volume. Uh, and so he did a linear progression for about six weeks and added 150 pounds to his total. I, that's, not, that's not necessarily typical, but I've seen it happen a few times with people I've worked with. Um, and I think, uh, so yeah, you could try. Mm -hmm. We have the same answer. All right. Finn 76. How can I help my wife do her first chin up? Uh, first don't train your wife. Okay. Uh, <laughs> she can't, unless, lift, unless you're right. She can't lift herself even one inch. She's squatting, deadlifting and pressing. Uh, should I introduce pendlay rows and barbell curls in her program to strengthen the muscles needed for chin ups? Uh, yeah, uh, I, no. I will. So I wouldn't actually introduce the row and, and curl for her because what you're telling me is that the, she can't do a chin up, which suggests to me that uh, effectively she's she needs to train more. Okay, so she's not very adept at uh, you know she hasn't been exposed to a strength training stimulus very many times. Otherwise, she'd already be able to kind of you know do a first chin up or at least some sort of have some sort of movement. Exactly. So doing, adding more fatigue to, to somebody who's basically very green from a training perspective is probably not what I, what I would do. Um, I think the, there are a few ways to approach a first chin-up. If somebody is overweight, they need to lose weight. I mean, that's just the you know, easy thing. Two, keep, keep practicing, but in, you know, useful practice for chin-ups include negatives, uh, where basically you jump up and you hold your chin over the bar and then slowly lower yourself down as slow as you can. Uh, risks with that, it makes people very, very sore. Because uh, it's all eccentric, the, which means muscle lengthening. The, so the, the stock recommendation I have for that is for people to do low amount of singles. Just start out, do five singles. Because each rep's maybe you know, five seconds, ten seconds, and you still get super sore. Um, and then you just take that up over time, and eventually they start building the strength to be able to, to, to pull themselves up. You can use a band uh, to do full range you know, pull-ups or chin-ups. Uh, and then if neither of those work, or if somebody, you know, if somebody's very, very overweight, I don't do that because they're just, they're just too far off. Uh, so I'll have them do inverted rows, basically a bar in the rack or a Smith machine if you happen to be at a commercial gym, and yeah, they'll just do pull downs too. Yeah, pull downs if you have access to that. If you're in your garage, hang a bar in the rack. You can have them do uh, at about hip level, and they can do inverted rows. They're called body rows or something like that as well. So. Yeah, I think we can leave it at that. Right. I would say. 
most of the same, same, same stuff. Ahmed underscore Lodestar. How do you guys prefer to program pressing and benching for intermediates without fractional plates? Dr. Baraki. Um, so once you're at the intermediate stage, I try to get a sense for, from people as to what their goals are for why they're training. Um, so that I can determine, uh, do I need to, is there going to, am I, are we working towards prioritizing one lift over the other, for example, or if not, and we're trying to keep it balanced, that can kind of make things a little trickier to program um, correctly. Um, so if you don't have fractional plates, then that means that basically the stress that you would expect can pr that would produce a uh, fractional plates worth of increase in strength. So the amount of stress that it might take to get your press to go up two and a half pounds for the next workout isn't going to be enough to make it go up five pounds if that's all you have access to in terms of increments. So basically, you need to do more volume to get enough stress to make your press go up by more than two and a half pounds in order to get the next five pound increment. Um, that applies really to both. And if you if you try to get all that volume in, in one session and it absolutely wrecks you, then the other variable you can play with is frequency and press more often during the week. That'll yeah. be the way I would do it. Yeah, I would also get fractional plates. They're really not expensive enough for that to be a limitation. <laughs> it, it really, they're just really not. You can make them. The you get washers at a uh, hardware store, and yeah. so washers with a two-inch hole in the middle. You can usually get some for that are like 0.6 pounds or something like that. So you put two of them together, and it's one yeah. and a quarter, give or take. Yeah. Yep. All right. Uh, Miss Smith, CU, or M Smith, CU. Either way. Uh, how has your training evolved over time, and what are some individual milestones or markers that indicated a change in training level, i.e. novice intermediate or intermediate to advanced? Dr. Baraki. So the, I'll answer the easy part of the question first is basically asking how we define those stages of training. So sure. we define a novice as someone who can recover in about 48 hours from a training stimulus and manifest a higher level of performance two days later, for example. In three sets of five, you could come back add five pounds two days later. If you can successfully complete that, then you're still a novice. Um, once you get to the point where it takes you longer, we arbitrarily define it as a week's worth of time before you can manifest a higher level of performance uh, than you are what we define as an intermediate. Once you get beyond that into the month's time frame, or even longer, like in Jordan's time frame, then you're a more advanced lifter where you're PRing once every five years or something like that. So. Yeah, I'm on a, I'm sounds on a, about right. I'm on a, about, yeah. I'm on a quadrennial. Uh, All right, sounds good. Yeah. Uh, and so the first part of the question, how has your training evolved over time? Basically, it's followed the same trajectory that most people's takes when they go from novice intermediate to advanced. Volume goes up over time. Frequency goes up over time. Everything goes up over time. Your rate of progress slows. <laughs> Jordan starts to approach the grave. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. I'm actually, you just have to do more. I'm actually on a new program. It's called uh, Ending Strength. <laughs> it's a linear regression. <laughs> you just take five pounds off the bar each session. Each session you're until you're dead. Yeah, that's what's happening. Uh, All right. Yep. That's it. All right. We're next. Ellis Ryan, 04. I, do you think that he graduated in 04 or that he made the account in 04? Like he was making his AOL screen name and then decided, you know what? I bet you there's going to be this picture app that comes out later. And I'm just going to yeah. use right. <laughs> There what, were three other guys that beat him to it. What was your, did you have an AOL screen name? Um, it was my like Spanish name in high school. Chacho was my Spanish name in high school. Wait. I forget what it had some numbers afterwards. I don't know what the numbers were. Wait, you're not Spanish? Yeah, I'm not Spanish, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Mine was Camaro Z28 566. It's just I think was 
Well, it's embarrassing enough. Okay. Yeah. Ellis Ryan 4 asks, Austin, since you were a collegiate swimmer, I figured you may be able to inform me a bit on swimming-specific programming. How does linear progression work for swimming? Can you make strength gains and swimming gains at the same time? Also, notice he spelled gains wrong twice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Any advice for programming in general? Um, so there is no such thing as swimming-specific strength programming, at least since we're talking about strength, strength training here. Um, uh, you could get heavy water. Yeah, swim through deuterated water. <laughs> okay, so um, so swimming specific programming. You are trying to get stronger. So our question to you would be, what is strength? The answer is your ability to produce force uh, against an external resistance. How do we make that go up? We make you produce force against an external resistance. The most efficient way to do that is with barbells. The most effective lifts to do that with barbells are the squat, the press, the deadlift, the bench press. So you should be doing those lifts to get stronger. That. I just saved you, not really, from reading the book. But that's basically the argument, right? So <laughs> you are not, there's nothing special or specific about swimming that exempts you from needing to squat, press, deadlift, bench press um, because you're trying to get stronger and that's the most efficient, effective way to get stronger. Uh, the only thing I would say is that when you're in your off season, like you probably are right about now, because I just got emailed uh, last week by a couple swimmers who just finished their conference championship meets in late February saying that it's time for their uh, off-season, they're looking to get stronger, they need some help figuring out how to do it. Um, so basically they're gonna do the novice linear progression for the next three months while they're in their off-season until it's the summer training time when their coaches all expect them to be in the water six, eight, ten times a week. At that point stuff gets hard because swimming in general overdoses you on volume in the pool, way too much time and yardage for most people. Um, now looking back, I recognize that more than I did at the time, obviously. If you're going to be training for strength in season, you still need to squat. I would definitely prioritize the press overhead done correctly to protect your shoulders because of how common shoulder injuries are. Um, and I would make sure you're deadlifting. If you're a sprinter, sure, you could do the power clean to develop some rate of force development kind of stuff. But that's less important in my mind than just squat, press, deadlift uh, while you're in season. And then you can do the regular program in an off season. There's nothing else special that you need to worry about. I have a lot of nuanced stuff that I want to talk about, but not for it's just not point of point there's no point no one, yeah. no one no one cares all right for for my what my nuance here all right uh kaylin gonzalez how do i incorporate cardio in the starting strength program you don't you don't and what i mean by that is you don't uh unless you're if you're if you're very very overweight okay i'm talking bmi in excess of 30 35 uh you can do some conditioning but then you're also committing to a, a diet that produces weight loss. Uh, and if that's not the case, you're not, don't do cardio. Do it after the novice, novice progression. Because by telling me you're a novice and you can respond to that, that level of stimulus and, re and recover and adapt and improve, you're telling me that you're not, you're not well trained, which means you cannot tolerate extra training. <laughs> All right, so don't do it. Unless I agree. I just poured myself another whiskey while you were doing that, so that's fine. That's we can good. Go to the next one. Next yeah. question. <laughs> Rich, Richie in San Diego, Jordan. I'm interested to hear my, your thoughts. You don't have to answer this, I guess. All right, sounds uh, good. <laughs> interested <laughs> in your thoughts on how to jump back into a novice LP, or even if you should, after getting probably close to the late novice stage, but having to pause and take a layoff for a while because of an injury. You made it five months into LP before taking a break for several months due to elbow discomfort, possibly tendonitis since corrected. At that point, I was still progressing linearly on the squat and deadlift, but taking resets on the presses. Since the layoff, you started 5-3-1 for unknown reasons and have <laughs> resumed a pretty steady progression, but always curious if you left anything on the table with that LP and if it would make sense to try to pick back up or 
just focus on more uh, intermediate level, intermediate programming at this point. Okay, hold on. So there's, so Richie, here's the deal. You running uh, LP for five months seems unlikely. Just because five months on LP is a long time to, to run LP uh, if you did it correctly. Even if you started with the empty bar, what is the, what are the calculation? That's 15 pounds a week over, uh, you know, that's 20, 20 weeks, right? So you, <laughs> what are you, you're squatting in the 400s for three sets of five or something at the, at the end of the deal. Uh, so that's probably unlikely. So I'm assuming some issues came up along the way. And then you took some time off, which means you detrained, and then you jumped to a more advanced program, which, again, you know, so I would actually say that you should have restarted LP when you come back to training. And the way you do it is you go into the gym, you start with the empty bar for a set of five, and you add weight that session up until the bar speed slows down. At that point, that tells you it's a challenge for today, and you do your three sets of five there, and that's where you start. That's how you come, that's any layoff, that's how it goes, all right? So I would stop doing five, three, one, as soon as you hear this. Forever. Forever. Don't give the ebook to somebody. Just you put it in your trash file, delete it, and then you have to wipe your computer to make sure that it's all gone. <laughs> I think it's like shift delete or something. It's yeah. the perma delete. <laughs> yeah, perma perma delete. And then I would restart the novice program. And then you should only be able to run it for about three to four months. Three months maybe, you know, for, for a, not, a person who's not gaining a bunch of weight. And uh, and then you can modify and do advanced novice, sure. But and if and resetting the presses, don't do that. If you reset if you're if you're not making progress on the novice level of of, uh, of volume, uh, frequency and intensity, then you have you jump just jump to intermediate level programming for the press and bench. You can do that. Yep. Yep. Press and bench need more more volume, more frequency sooner than the other lifts do. Yep. All right. Trainer J Campuzano, which condition exercise can one substitute for the prowler, if any, and what would be the best time to reduce it? Uh, all right. So Austin, why is the prowler favored for conditioning, if it is? It, it, yeah, we favor the the prowler as basically as a full body conditioning stimulus that has no eccentric component to it, so you don't get sore and it has minimal. It, not that not that it has no fatigue because everything that you do has some component of it to it, but it has less of a uh, less of an eccentric no eccentric component to it, less of a technique component to it. You can just push the damn thing. Yep. Um, you can do intervals, and yeah, we like it for that reason. Yeah. Uh, so as far as substitution, and it's incrementally loadable. Sorry, incrementally lo loadable too. Yeah, provided you're surf you're pushing on the same surface for sure. Uh, so when it, uh, what would what could you substitute for that? Cycling has less of a. a Eccentric, you know, almost, almost, almost none, but it's not really incrementally loadable. Uh, so there's that, uh, and I don't really know of other <laughs> conditioning exercises besides a sled or a prowler that doesn't have any eccentric. Uh, so, what's the best conditioning exercise that you can substitute for the prowler? Should you not have one? Sex. The answer is sex. And when should you introduce it? When you're mature enough to understand the risks of having sex. It's true. All right. <laughs> Next, you can do intervals. You can do steady state. <laughs> we're going. We're going rated R. Okay. Uh, Lachna, how should you, as a power lifter, wait, wait? How should I, as a power lifter, which responds well to a kind of expanded Texas method training schedule, two stress days, which means to me that I'm on an intermediate level, implement the press in my training program? Is there any recommendation to, like a bench to overhead rate? When I read this. <laughs> I said I was going to defer to Jordan because I don't know what the question is. 
Yeah, I don't know what two stress days means. Let's say it's two volume days. Uh, or that you're just t- defining stress days as volume and intensity day. Uh, I don't know. Dude, I don't even know what you're asking. I really don't. Um, I do have a, a, a powerlifting-specific uh, kind of Texas method uh, scheme on my website, 12 Ways, or sorry, on my website, barbellmedicine.com. The article is called 12 Ways to Skin the Texas Method. You can use that. I think you should still press at least one day per week. Uh, I don't think that you should do Texas method, though, just in general. Unless it's a split method, which is not the Texas method. So, yeah. that's, my, that's my answer. Instasuckogram. Hey, great name. Which, okay. What typical differences are expected when comparing a 20-year-old individual to a 40-year-old one uh, in terms of how long one can remain on novice progression and the numbers one can achieve if doing everything right for a couple of years? I was surprised to have mo- to move to weekly progression too soon, quote, uh, Texas method. I know my sleep nutrition isn't perfect, but still, after way less than a year and Texas method is also beating me up, is this normal? Yes. Or do I just fail too hard at sleep nutrition? Probably also yes. Not as a, that's not a personal I'm assuming, I'm assuming this person is the 40-year-old in the example who's asking this question. Yep. Um, yeah, and the fact that you went through your novice progression uh, and are on Texas method and it's beating you up, beating you up, what you to um, in a way that you perceive to be too much, all in less than a year, is not surprising at all. Yep. Yep. I don't. Yeah. I mean, as a forty-year-old, you're just you have less resources to train. Even if you're, I mean, you're you're in general, you have a real job. <laughs> you have a family on you know uh, most of the time. So your, your training resources are compromised. Uh, you probably don't commit as much time to sleep as somebody who is training, uh, getting paid to train or doesn't have a job or doesn't, you know, is in college or whatever. Your hormonal milieu, so your testosterone levels uh, may be compromised or they may not. I mean, on average, probably, probably not, to be honest. Uh, and then I don't know what your nutrition status is, but I'm going to guess. I mean, here's the most common situation I see. person is... Five foot ten, 180 pounds, 45 years old, doesn't want to gain any weight, but wants to get stronger and yeah. does conditioning on their off days. They ride their bike, you know, once a week and goes for a run the other day of the week because cardio. And you ask them, what do they want? Oh, I want to get stronger. I'd like to gain some more muscle mass. And you're like, all right, well, we need to gain a little bit of weight. Let's stop doing that cardio stuff for now. We could push a prowler once every two weeks or something to maintain some level of conditioning because you don't actually play a sport that requires a high level of conditioning. Uh, and we're not going to do Texas method. We're going to do this other thing. And they're like, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. They, they have so many, so many problems. And the, and the thing is, it's like, well, you're telling us that you want to get stronger. You want to get bigger. We're providing, we're, this is the way to do it. The way to do it is not by maintaining or losing weight. The way to do it is not by training less. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, I think, Overall, your situation is not necessarily unique. Uh, the answer on what to do, or the answer on what's the difference between a 20-year-old and a 40-year-old, the 20-year-old is going to be able to do everything a little bit easier and a little bit... I mean, it's true. Uh, in general, the 20-year-old version of you is going to respond better to training, respond better to, to protein even uh, at a, on, a, on, a, on a biochemical level, and uh, in general be able to, to do, to do lot near, linear progression for longer. Um, and maybe even be able to tolerate Texas method. So recommendation would be don't stop doing Texas method, switch to the split, split routine. If you're going to still keep that sort of set up and then, uh, make sure to optimize your nutrition, check if you have sleep apnea <laughs> and just, you know, sta- standard stuff. Well, thanks. Yeah. Standard stuff.
All right. Uh, Dmitry Klokov asks... Oh, no, that's not your name. It's... <laughs> Thanks for doing this Q&A. Here's my question. When squatting, I always feel the squats more on my glutes than my quads. I've come to realize the reason for this is that I break, or brack, hips first, and my torso is more angled, while my tibias are almost perpendicular to the floor. I tried staying more upright and think the mobility is there, but whenever I try to put my knees over my toes and create a greater shin angle, my knee makes a popping sound. It doesn't hurt during squatting bit after I cool down. I get a weird sensation in the knee. Any fixes? I squat with knee sleeves on. I'm thinking about getting weightlifting shoes. I squat with flats at the moment. Yeah. So you should get some shoes. You should take a video of your squat and have it checked on our coaches form check uh, resources or see a coach in person. The popping in your knees, I mean, I can't tell you if it's good or bad. It's probably normal. Um, I know most of the people I know, me and Gordon both have snap, crackle, pops in our knees, but they don't tend to hurt very much, actually, at all. Um, so I wouldn't sweat that stuff. Just get your form checked, uh, see a coach, because this stuff, what you're describing is super common, and it's not that hard to fix. We just need, you just need to have somebody yelling at you during the lift to get your knees forward, and uh, and um, that's really about it. Yeah. <laughs> and, it's hard. And, and the fact that you feel it in your glutes more than your quads, is, I mean, that's so totally irrelevant. Irrelevant. Yep. yep. Doesn't matter where you feel it. Yep. How you feel is a lie. It's like it's a great John Bros quotable. Yeah. Which is an interesting segue. All right, so Austin. Let's say I held Lorraine and your cat. What's your cat's name? Pepper. Lorraine and Pepper. I held them hostage and said, in one month, you ha- <laughs> you have to deadlift seven hundred pounds. Alright. Uh or I'll kill them. Yeah. How many times a week would you deadlift? <laughs> Probably like five. More than once. Yeah. Because <laughs> you and know, I, and I and I gain about a hundred pounds. Right, right, right. You, you, all the things. So, so yeah. The the point of that whole thought experiment is that, in general, doing less is unlikely to produce an improved result. Yes. <laughs> and we know that gaining weight helps you get stronger. Uh, okay. Next, Valentine Hotep. Uh, hey, this is the guy that likes Gary Taubes. Yeah. Well. Well, not everyone's perfect. Maybe, <laughs> it's all good, man. Maybe it's all right. we, won't hold it, we won't hold it against him here. It's all right. Maybe he believes in muscle adhesions, too. No, I'm just oh, kidding. He probably well, doesn't. Then... <laughs> then, we then, gotta, then we got a question. Then we got a problem. Then we got a problem. All right, so I think you would both consider it wise for athletes in sport to take time off for the sport to get stronger. If they did so, and their sport is something like jiu-jitsu or wrestling, how difficult would it be to maintain or increase strength levels once they resumed? Depends. <laughs> oh, what a sick! Answer. I'm pulling a Jordan here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it depends on it. De- it depends on what your actual training is for your primary sport. To what extent you can balance that, if you can at all, with the strength training. Maintaining usually is not that difficult to. It's not that difficult to maintain strength once it's there. Um, increasing your strength levels really significantly while you're in the middle of. I mean, I don't know anything about jujitsu training. That's where I'm coming from. If it's super brutal and you're doing two a days, like seven days a week for jujitsu training or something like that, then yeah, maybe it's going to be pretty hard if you're feeling just beat to crap by other people all the time to get under the bar and put a lot of a lot of weight on your squat over the course of a uh, over the course of a couple months. But yeah, it just depends on where what the competing resources are for your recovery. Uh, yeah. Let's consider nuance. Well, I think we have to make some assumptions here to provide a useful answer. All right, so. If someone is a wrestler, what age demographic does that li- limit them to? 
probably like early teens to mid twenties. Yeah, like you're you're basically high school and college. That that's yep. basically your your big chunk. Okay, and at that point, uh, uh, the sport is either sending you to school, or or that's like you're you're obviously making significant sacrifices. Your season is compressed. Okay, but still. Uh, the skill set required in order to be good at your sport uh, needs to be practiced and maintained. I think we would both agree that both sports, jiu-jitsu and wrestling, have a very high technique component. Yeah. Uh, if there's a huge strength imbalance between <laughs> two equivalently <laughs> skilled, yeah, then obviously you know the stronger one's gonna gonna be better. Uh, but you know, obviously, strength uh, or sorry, skill plays a huge role, and that needs to be practiced. That being said. I actually would not recommend taking time off the sport. I, I think what you what you would do is you have to come up with what is the minimal effective dose for skill maintenance. And, and for a new wrestler or jiu-jitsu, this is it'd actually just be skill improvement. You're just like every time you're exposed to it, you get a little better. Uh, but yep. but I really admire- I don't think I don't think anyone really thinks of it in terms of skill maintenance because you know I mean it, when you're in any highly skilled dependent sport, really any sport at all, like you always perceive yourself as being able to get better in some way. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. Ju- it's just that because the, both of those sports, like practicing in slow mo, for instance, <laughs> like it doesn't yeah. that doesn't help you. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's kind of similar to to uh, uh, any really highly skilled sport has to be done almost at, at full speed uh, for it to for it to transfer over. So in any event, I would not agree that people should take time off their sport. So that's I wouldn't actually recommend that. I do think that they should take if it's off season, then you can commit more resources to actually getting stronger. Uh, and so, but when you come back in season, it depends on how many resources are dedicated towards practice and competition. If you have a competition every weekend and you're training, you know, seven to 10 times per week just to, for, for your sport, well, I'm going to tell you, you don't have enough resources to get stronger during that time in general, unless you're really untrained, <laughs> in which case, you know, you're, you're going to still see an improvement. So in any event, I think you and I both agree based on in-season versus off-season training, yeah, I think we could replace that first sentence where it says to take time off from the sport to get stronger. I think we could just replace that with we think it would both we, we both think it would be wise for athletes in a sport to run an honest novice LP. Yeah, at least in their career, you know what I mean. Like yeah. everyone should do that. Yeah, and and during that time you would do minimal uh, sport practice, but it's, it's not, you wouldn't take time off. You would just once yeah. or twice per week or something like that during the off season. All right. Sin Fusion, you're squatting 315 by 5 and pulling over 400 both beltless, but bench is stuck at 155 by 5. What could cause such a huge imbalance? By squat and deadlifts, my squat and deadlifts continue to explode, but my bench doesn't seem to respond to anything. Resets, back offsets, etc. We're missing some critical, a critical bit of information. Two critical bits in my mind. One, I assume this is a male. Just... I'm yeah. just, I'm, I assume it's a male. Okay, two. I don't know what the program is that you're running. Uh, because, you know, and three, I don't know, did you have this, you know, uh, a trauma to the upper body previously on some level? I, well, I'm serious. I mean, that's a huge, that's a huge difference. And so unless there's a glaring form issue or some sort of, you know, previous injury that is, you know, or nerve injury or something like that, uh, I don't know. That's, that's, that's gnarly. And difference. I mean, the first thing, what, so assuming all that stuff that somebody's on, you know, not a horrible program, they're a male, they're not, um, you know, cachectic, and, you know, I, my first question, because we get asked this all the time, because people's bench uh, progress can be slow or stubborn, particularly uh, towards the end of the novice uh, linear progression and early intermediate training, everybody wants a big bench. 
And so the first question is just, how much are you benching? How often are you benching? Yeah. Um, if, you're, if you're doing the novice LP and you're benching twice one week and only once the next week, which gives you a massive amount of time in between sequential bench sessions, that is not going to keep working for very long. So um, frequency needs to go up. Yeah, and then, I don't know, I'm just afraid this guy's running 531. Like, when I when I go into a commercial gym, you know, I'm like, oh, I bet this guy's running 531. I just You see him do some AMRAPs or something. And, yeah. yeah. I'm like, oh, dang. And then that's, if that's the case, then you're just working with submaximal weight. To He, he advises, hey, take 10% off your 1RM and base your intensities off that. And it's like, uh, that seems like a terrible idea for progress, you know, yeah. unless, unless you're just assuming people are making up their 1RM, in which case you're, you're trusting. In which case that was genius. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, but then you're, and then you're trusting them to do this program that, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. That's a good yeah, so it depends. Your programming probably needs some adjustment as long as you, you know, don't have an injury that we're not hearing about. Um, yeah. Uh, all right. And then the final question for the training section. Seven Races asks, I've read that hip thrusts are beneficial for strengthening hamstring and glutes. Uh, editor's note. Where? Is this valid? <laughs> and if so, how would one incorporate them into a lifting session? Uh, in brackets, I ask because I'm experiencing discomfort after heavy barbell sessions. I'm a novice and still casting around for guidance. Glute guy, tell me. I'm the glute guy. Okay. Well, you're Dr. Uh, glute guy. Uh, so you're a novice. Uh, that means that you don't need to be doing glute hip thrusts. Um, that's pretty much in the, it as far as that goes. In the uh, if you're having pain, you need a coach to take a look at your squat, make sure you're doing it right. You need to take, have them take a look at your program, make sure you're doing your program, a program that is intelligently written. Hip thrusts are beneficial for strengthening hamstrings and glutes compared to what? Like, um, are they as good as squats? No. Are they going to take a completely untrained person and make uh, give them some strength adaptations in their hamstrings and glutes? Sure. Does that mean that's a good reason for you to incorporate them? Not necessarily. So yeah. I think we need to exclude pathology um, going on with your squat. We need to diagnose what's going on, make sure you're able to squat without pain, which most people really are, and then you don't need to worry about doing hip thrusts, really, ever. Um, ever. Well, ever. not with a barbell anyway. <laughs> this also assumes that he's actually talking about uh, pain after training like squats and deadlifts versus just training heavy hip thrusts. Yeah, that's true. Because <laughs> if you're training heavy hip thrusts, then the you know the doctor answer is don't do it, but then the strength and conditioning coach answer is also don't do it. Yeah, um, yeah. I agree. I think you know people correlate improvements with doing them based on compared to not doing anything else, and so all it is is just additional training for the lower body. Uh, and if you compare that to, let's say you're squatting once a week and doing, and, and then you start doing hip thrusts once a week too, and you compare that to just squatting once a week, yeah, you may see an improvement in strength because you've just added training volume. Uh, wasn't exactly. Uh, but if you compare that to squatting twice per week, I'm going to bet dollars to donuts that the twice weekly squatting is better from a strength perspective and hypertrophy perspective than squats plus glute. Uh, glute bridges, which is probably better than just squatting once per week. And again, this is when we say an outcome from a strength perspective, that means your force production, i.e. how much weight is on the bar. If we're going to make the outcome be uh, surface EMG activity, then you're going to go down a whole different road if that's where you're reading this stuff about hip thrust being beneficial. Yeah, which, so we've been on this call for about 60 minutes, and I think this, you know, we'll, uh, 
we'll likely cut this guy into quarters, this, this podcast, because we have training, injury, nutrition, we have, and uh, the MISC section. And so I think breaking them up into quarters is probably a good idea. So this seems like a good place to segue into some questions just about training in general, because we're going to keep doing these Instagram lives. And I think ultimately this helps people ask better questions, help assess arguments a little better. So as we wrap this section up, when assessing training efficacy, Dr. Baraki, what sort of things are you looking at uh, in order to say, hey, this is good, or hey, this is bad, we need to make some moves? Well, I, need, I mean, I need to know. I need to, I need to get an assessment as to where they are in their training progression. Are they novice, intermediate, and advanced? And given that uh, designation, I suppose, are they making the expected rate of progress uh, for that label, supposedly? You know, if this person is a rank novice, and they're making progress slower than what we see all of our novices able to make, who are in the age cohort matched uh, category, I would say, then I'd say that something about your training is not ideal. Whether it be the stress that you're applying, whether it be the recovery that you're getting after your training, something is resulting in a suboptimal adaptation. So I need to assess the variables that go into applying a stress, volume, frequency, intensity, exercise selection, all that kind of stuff. I need to assess the recovery side of things, all the variables that go in there. Um, and kind of optimize what I can in order to get the the rate of adaptation that I expect for someone at a given training level. Right. So you're looking at objective outcomes, though. Uh, you're looking at uh, what is their, you know, what their how their strength is improving based on their work sets uh, and, and things of that nature. Versus how do you feel? Yes, feels don't matter. I mean, yeah, and, and you know, that's not to that's not to suggest that we don't care how you feel or we're not interested in you know. Your, your feelings uh, from a psych- psychological standpoint. It's just that they're not, one, your assessment of your own feelings <laughs> uh, and how things are going uh, are, are, are certainly subject to bias. Our assessment of your feelings are certainly subject to bias and are ultimately inaccurate. So we need to have some objective measurements. And I think you and I both assess training progress uh, uh, very objectively. So when you're asking these questions on Instagram, dear internet, we need to know. We need to know the context for which your question is. So, if you ask us about cardio, what's the context? Do you play a sport that has a big cardio requirement? Uh, if you're not making strength improvements, well, what have you been doing recently? <laughs> you know, and and what's been yeah. the, what's been the the rate of strength gain or or, or whatever? Uh, or or a pl- how long's the plateau been lasting? What's your w- body weight doing? What's your you know all sorts of things go into asking a really good question. And I think what you'll find is that we'll have better answers that are actually practical, the more information we have versus saying, uh, I don't know, it depends. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. seriously. But it turns out, it turns out you have to type a whole lot to answer all that or to give us all that information. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I you know, understand the limitations of the social media platform for that, but it's very difficult to provide you guys meaningful information without, without it. Uh, so in any event, yeah, so here's what we'll do, Austin, let's, let's end this, we'll sign off and then go from there so this is the end of the fourth fourth all this the training q a podcast this is the training q a podcast (laughs) thanks for joining us here at the barbell medicine podcast be sure to give us a review on itunes so that we can jump charlatans (laughs) tell tell us how smug we are (laughs) please no seriously if you have a chance please review us uh send us a uh uh, rate us so that helps us out so more people can listen and uh as always thanks for listening See you guys later.